So do we have the words? Absolutely, we have the words. And this is where I think Ehrman loves to use statistics are a little bit scary. He's used the number 200,000, 300,000, 400,000 textual variants. Actually, don't disagree with that number. I think it might even be higher than that. But what is typically left out of these discussions is an appreciation for what kind of variants we're talking about here. We're talking about mostly inconsequential textual mistakes that are common in any copying of ancient texts. Most commonly would be spelling mistakes and spelling errors, which make up the vast majority of those, but then other kinds of scribal slips that are very common. A word left out, words swapped, words replaced with synonyms, obvious scribal mistakes. So when you whittle it all down and eliminate all that, you're not actually dealing with that many textual variants that are actually significant and also unresolved. Welcome to the Apologetics Podcast. I'm Garrick Bailey. In each episode of this serious but lighthearted podcast, Timothy Paul Jones and I explore evidences for the truth of Christianity. And along the way, we even talk about movies, music, and culture. If you're interested in supporting this podcast and receiving shirts, mugs, and more, go to patreon.com slash three chords and the truth. That's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Apologetics Podcast, where we defend the faith, do justice, and dig for truth in rock and roll. I'm Timothy, and I spent yesterday afternoon in 90-degree heat hauling mulch, and believe it or not, I love every minute of it. <laughs> And I'm Garrick, and when I'm done with this recording, I'm going home in 90-degree heat to install a bunch of sprinklers, and I'm already hating it before it even starts. Well, today we have with us Dr. Michael Kruger. Dr. Kruger serves as the President and Patterson Professor of New Testament and Early Christianity at the Charlotte campus of the Reformed Theological Seminary. He earned his PhD under one of the world's leading text-critical scholars, Larry Hurtado, at the University of Edinburgh. He completed his Master of Divinity at Westminster Seminary, California, and his bachelor's degree at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Dr. Kruger is one of the world's leading scholars when it comes to the study of the origins of the New Testament and the development of the New Testament canon. He's the author of a dozen books, including Christianity at the Crossroads, How the Second Century Shaped the Future of the Church from IVP Academic, which won the Book of the Year Award from the Gospel Coalition in the category of History and Biography. This book, it's about the battles that Christians face to maintain their beliefs, their faith, their orthodoxy in the century that followed the writing of the New Testament. And so, before we talk about that battle, that very important <laughs> battle, we have another battle we need to talk about. Before we talk about anything about the second century battles of canon and all of those things like that, we have a battle that we call Indiana Jones and the Raiders of Church History. That's right, folks. It's that time when we talk about the different artifacts from church history or purported artifacts from church history. <laughs> and we talk about these artifacts and we put them into battle against one another and we see who wins when it comes to these artifacts from church history. Garrick, what do you have for us today in this contest, this battle of Indiana Jones and the Raiders of Church History? 
Yeah, before we discuss the second century battles, I'm taking us back to the first century, Timothy, uh, where I bring to battle today the chains of St. Paul. That's right, the chains of St. Paul. The chains of St. Paul are housed in the papal basilica named St. Paul Outside the Walls. That's the English version because I can't say the Italian version. Where you can also find in this basilica, which is one of four papal basilicas. In fact, it's reported to be the second largest church in Rome. And in this basilica, you can also find the Apostle Paul's tomb. In addition to the tomb, you will find the chains that bound Paul, the apostle, before he was martyred. They are publicly visible. They are actually encased above his sarcophagus. The basilica was originally built by Emperor Constantine in the year 324. It did burn down in 1823, but was rebuilt by apparently the same plans and standards and stands as that basilica today. So I bring to you, before you, Timothy, the chains of St. Paul. Well, I'm going a few centuries later in what I'm bringing to about the uh, 300s, somewhere around in the 300s, if this and is, in fact, a real artifact well, that it claims to be. <laughs> and I'm going with something that's actually found in Morton Grove, Illinois, of all places. So there aren't very many things from the 3rd, 4th, 5th century that are in Morton Grove, Illinois, that we know about. Or anywhere in America. <laughs> so, yeah, this is Morton Grove, Illinois. And they have, according to their tradition, what they believe they have there, the pelvis of Santa Claus. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I forgot. And and so, yes, they have Santa Claus's pelvis. So Nicholas of Myra, the great saint who was, according to some legends, probably not correct, but according to some legends, was at the Council of Nicaea to slap Arius. As much as we want that to be true, it probably isn't true. But nonetheless, we do know that Nicholas the Confessor, Nicholas of Myra, we do know he was somebody who was tortured for his faith. There's good evidence for that called Nicholas the Confessor. He was tortured for his faith. And then after... After Christianity becomes legal during the reign of Constantine across the breadth of the Roman Empire, he emerges as a champion of Nicene Orthodoxy in the fourth century. That much seems like it's true, but the great part of this is, is apparently his pelvis made its way to (laughs) Illinois. The poor Claire sisters of Lyon, France, apparently had his pelvis, as well as one of the bones from his feet, by the way, which they had that. It had been in Belgium, then it made its way to France. And so we have the pelvis of Santa Claus against the chains of St. Paul. <laughs> yeah, that's a big battle. You know, there are certainly degrees of questions that I have when it comes to some of these. I have a high degree of questioning going on in my head. The fun thing about the chains of St. Paul is their existence and the church's possession of them were mentioned as early as the 5th century by Leo, I think, maybe Leo. Anyways, I just found that pretty interesting, right? I mean, I was thinking about this. I was like, hey, there's a high degree of of likelihood that these are what they say they are. Now, I want to visit them and I'd love to see them, including the sarcophagus, but I just want to see them historically speaking. <laughs> But then again, on the other hand, we we do have good evidence as well that Santa Claus, St. Nicholas of Myra, had a pelvis. I think we have good evidence of that, too. (laughs) I think we have good evidence. I mean, if Nicholas of Myra was indeed Santa Claus, then obviously he had been to 
Illinois at some point because <laughs> there were children there and, <laughs> you know, and he had to deliver them presents. So listen, being the peacemaker that I am, don't ever want to assert my dominance, but I feel like this is pretty clear cut on several levels. If we were just saying likelihood of legitimacy, if we were going to be people who revered relics, this I'm going to go with the chains in an actual fight. I have some range here, right? Like <laughs> you could throw a pelvis or if you hit me with it, much like a, a jawbone, right? That would hurt, but I've got reach on you. And in the end, I could just chain up your pelvis, not your pelvis, <laughs> Timothy. Let's not the pelvis of St. Nick. I just want to be clear in my wording here. <laughs> it's pretty clear that at multiple levels, including likelihood and including battle readiness and battle capacity, I'm pretty sure the chains of St. Paul, even if they aren't the chains of St. Paul, are going to triumph over the pelvis of Santa Claus. And I just think the chains have it at this point. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Kruger. Well, thank you. It's great to be with you. Well, I have to ask one question that is part of every one of our podcasts, and it's a very important question to us. We care deeply about apologetics, but we also care very deeply about rock and roll. And because of that, <laughs> we have to ask the question, if you could be part of any rock band in the history of rock and roll, what band would that be and what would you be doing? Wow. There's a question for you. Yeah, we're getting right into the theology right out of the gate here. So, well, you know, I grew up in the 1980s. So I've got to say that, you know, U2 always stands out to me as sort of a classic rock band. They've been around forever. Some long lasting hits. Of course, Bono just was in Ukraine, I think last week, doing a surprise subway concert there with The Edge. So that was kind of fun to see. And so, yeah, I mean, if there's any group I'd love to be with, it would probably be U2. And if the dancer on the street wears a veil of tears It's a dance no army can defeat Love turns her fears Into a kind of rage That can't be kept inside a cage You fight or you fly we're born or we die for freedom. So now, do you prefer the era of the Joshua Tree, all that era right there, that kind of type of U2 right there, or the Octune Baby, that type of an era of about three albums or some combination or something other than either of those? Probably a combination. You know, I, I think Joshua Tree was their peak, and I think most would agree with that. But I loved Octung Baby. I thought it was great. It's obviously a different vibe for them. And I like some of their more recent stuff, too. So, you know, one of the things that shows a good rock band is just the ability to have longevity. You know, U2's done an amazing job sort of growing with the world they're in. They're not just, you know, always retro living in the past. So I, I appreciate that about them.
Well, you're a New Testament scholar, but you've also done a great deal of work that defends the text and the canon of Scripture, as well as the place of Scripture in the early church. I'm very thankful for the work you've done in those areas. But I found almost always, if somebody is defending the truth of Scripture, if that's an interest, if that's part of the work they're doing, there almost always is some story behind it as to why they feel compelled to do that. And so I would just like to ask you first, what's your story? What is the story? of why you care about defending the truth of Scripture in the way that you do? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, on one level, of course, it's true for any Christian. If you believe the Bible, you care about its teachings. And so I think there's a general answer there that probably applies to everybody. But my particular answer is probably a story that some of your listeners have heard before. And I've just written about it, actually, in my most recent book, Surviving Religion 101, which is, you know, I had a formative moment as a freshman in college at UNC Chapel Hill where I was in a religion class a New Testament class, and the scholar was, you know, very gifted, dynamic, very persuasive, and argued that the New Testament was unreliable and poorly transmitted and not worth your trust. That professor was Bart Ehrman. And so Ehrman as a professor was pretty overwhelming for a 19, 20-year-old kid. You know, I really didn't know what to do with what I was learning, but it forced me to really dig into my faith and ask the tough questions about whether what I believe was true. And it, it sort of set me on a new trajectory, which after many, many years and many, many things, ends up where I am today, where I'm a New Testament scholar talking about the same issues. So that's kind of neat to see how God used that. So my story may be unique, but I'm passionate about the Bible because of what I went through. Well, you and I have both engaged with Dr. Ehrman in different ways. You at this personal level and I with some in email exchanges, but also writing a book and engaging with him, had the opportunity to speak at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill to many of his students at one point. And of course, he's a very significant author who back in 2005 did what is really unthinkable. I think there's a sense in which many of us would dream of doing something like this, and it's making textual criticism land on the, on the bestseller lists. And uh, in his book, Misquoting Jesus. So suddenly, people are talking about textual criticism, which at one level, as a pastor at the time, I was super excited about this because people were asking questions that I really, really did want to answer. At the same time, many people were unequipped to deal with what was really also an attack on the reliability and integrity of the New Testament. In this book, he makes claims like this one, just pulling a typical type of statement out of this book. We don't have the originals of the biblical manuscripts. What we have are copies made later, much later. There are more different among our manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. We have only error-ridden copies, and the vast majority of these are centuries removed from the originals. If one wants to insist that God inspired the very words of Scripture, what is the point if we don't even have the very words of Scripture? So, I mean, you know these words. You've read those type of things. You've heard those type of things. But you and I both know as men of the church who lead in our churches and love our people that there are educated lay people who read this, and this rocks their faith. It shakes them as down to the core of their faith of, oh my goodness, I've trusted in the Bible. Can I really trust the Bible? So let's think through, if an educated layperson in your church comes to you and says to you, I read this and now I really don't know whether I can believe the Bible or not. What are you going to say to that person? How are you going to respond to them on their level in a way that assures them of the reliability of the text, but also takes account of what you and I both know, that there are thousands, hundreds of thousands, actually, of differences among the New Testament manuscripts scattered throughout all of these over 5,000 manuscripts. Yeah, I mean, you got to give Ehrman credit here. I mean, he's, you know, made a popular level shot here at textual criticism, has been widely successful at it. I would be pretty confident, though, that if the book had been about the reliability of the text, it would not have been a New York Times bestseller. 
I mean, the title misquoting Jesus sold the book, right? And so people are enamored with conspiracy theory ideas that maybe the Bible isn't true after all. And so if you write a book about how it's all been a fraud, then you're going to get a lot more listeners of your book. Yeah, Ehrman makes these arguments. They're very stunning when you first hear the numbers and kind of overwhelming. And, you know, he has a habit of sort of overstating, I think, what the argument really is. And I think this is an example of that where he's he's brought up some true things that scholars have known for years and then tried to go on a little too far with them in a way that starts to impugn the authority of Scripture. I don't think it does. And so first thing I would say to the listener is you've got to divide the issue and understand what's at stake here. What's in view here is not the truth of the Bible. The truth of the Bible has to do with whether the things it says are right and accurate, right? So this is what we mean by inerrancy. Inerrancy gets to the question of whether the Bible's affirmations are in fact true. But that's actually not what we're talking about here. That's not even what Ehrman's talking about. Ehrman's not talking about whether what the Bible says is true. He's just asking whether we have the words of the Bible. And those are two separate things. So first thing to help people realize is this has nothing to do with inerrancy on a technical level. Inerrancy just simply has to do with whether what the Bible affirms is in fact the case not whether we have the words. Now, I'm not saying it's not important whether we have the words. I'm just saying, let's get the issue straight. So do we have the words? Absolutely, we have the words. And this is where I think Ehrman loves to use statistics that are a little bit scary. He's used the number 200,000, 300,000, 400,000 textual variants. Actually, don't disagree with that number. I think it might even be higher than that. But what is typically left out of these discussions is an appreciation for what kind of variants we're talking about here. We're talking about mostly inconsequential textual mistakes that are common in any copy of ancient text. Most commonly would be spelling mistakes and spelling errors, which make up the vast majority of those. But then other kinds of scribal slips that are very common, a word left out, words swapped, words replaced with synonyms, obvious scribal mistakes. So when you whittle it all down and eliminate all that, you're not actually dealing with that many textual variants that are actually significant and also unresolved, which is the key thing. Here's the other thing I'll mention is that those numbers are a little deceiving because no one tells you why we have so many textual variants that we know about, because we have so many manuscripts that we've discovered, more than any other documents in the ancient world. So obviously, for every new manuscript you discover, you discover more times that scribes made a mistake copying that manuscript. doesn't mean there's actually a proportion of more mistakes. just means you discovered more because you have more manuscripts. And so we can't take what is positive, namely lots of manuscripts, and turn it around as a negative, which is what he's trying to do. And I think that's an unfortunate move. So when the dust settles, I think we have a lot of confidence in the text of the New Testament. So let's think about for a moment, you and I both spend time looking at actual ancient texts and manuscripts at times, and it might be helpful for our listeners simply to hear and to understand, recognizing many of them have never seen an ancient text, and many of them have never seen something like that. How was the New Testament originally written and copied? Describe for our listeners, how do they look? How are they copied? How were they put down in a written form to begin with? Well, yeah, this is important to recognize. I mean, the average person today thinks of the Bible as a printed book on the shelf where you could just pluck it off the shelf and every copy looks like every other copy. In the ancient world, the Bible was produced and distributed and copied like any other ancient book would be. It was copied by scribes, by hand, carefully, one letter, effectively at a time. Now, we hear that and we think, oh, no, that means it's wildly unreliable and and untrustworthy. Not true. Actually, we have a great amount of evidence that the scribal infrastructure in Christianity was fairly sophisticated. They understood the copying of literary texts. We could say at some level, the scribes are actually very capable and often professional. So we don't have to worry about whether they were capable of doing their task. If you were to look at an ancient manuscript, obviously it's going to be written on papyrus or parchment. The earliest copies typically are papyrus. The letters are in what we would call now unseals or what would be for lay people just sort of capital Greek letters. No spaces, what's known as scriptio continua. So if you looked at it, it would look like a bunch of random letters 
But in the ancient world, if you were trained in Greek, you would know how to read that. You would know how to intuitively put spaces between words. And, you know, these copies were used for public reading, for speaking and preaching. And we have many of these copies from the early church. And so, you know, what we do as textual scholars is we look at what these copies would have been like in the second century and later. And this really gives us an idea of why we can trust the copying process because we see how it was done. Well, some of your most valuable work has focused on the formation of the canon of the New Testament. And as we know, Athanasius of Alexandria listed the books of the New Testament canon, those 27 books, in an Easter letter in the year 367. That's actually true. He did that. But one of the most widespread claims about the canon is that this was the first time that these texts were ever listed. And in fact, it's something that I was taught all the way through my degrees. I was taught these were first listed even by people who believe the Bible and who were not trying to impugn the authority of the Bible that the first time these 27 texts were ever listed was in Athanasius of Alexandria in the year 367. But those that impugn the authority of Scripture often will point out or will try to highlight that the words of Athanasius supposedly were not able to settle the canon as if that letter was intended to settle the canon in the first place. So let's think about this letter of Athanasius, this oft-repeated claim that Athanasius was the first to put these down, list these books, and that this didn't settle the canon. There's so many errors in that way of thinking that we hear so often. Let's unpack that a little bit. Could you bring some clarity to that issue of what that means and what it doesn't mean? Yeah, so let's grant for the moment the technical truth of that statement. I've actually challenged it on a number of levels, but let's say that it's the earliest list where all 27 and only these 27 books are mentioned. That's generally true. I made a, an argument five, six years ago, actually probably more than that now, where I argue that actually Origen has an earlier list from about 250. So actually more than 100 years earlier, he has what I would argue is a complete list of all 27 books. But leaving that aside for the moment, let's just grant it's correct. There's still so many misleading things about that. One is it acts like the only thing that tells us what books are in the canon were lists, formal lists. Well, that's simply not true. We can deduce what the canon was, not just by formal lists, but by how books were utilized how they were discussed, how they were quoted in the early patristic sources. And I've made the case, and many others have, have made this case too, is that by the middle to late second century, we already have what we could call a core canon in place by 180. And this would be something like 22 out of 27 books. So if you think, well, we don't have a canon until Athanasius in 367. Well, that's technically true. If someone means only a fixed final close list, I would even argue that's not even true. But certainly it isn't true if you ask how books function long before Athanasius. And so I would say we've had a canon for generations before Athanasius ever put that down. So what you're trying to tell us is that the Council of Nicaea in 325 wasn't where the entire canon was decided. I mean, that <laughs> isn't that common knowledge. <laughs> I say that because so many times I've had even Bible-believing church people ask, wasn't this where the entire canon was decided is the Council of Nicaea 325? It's like one of those old wives tales that you never really know where it started and it keeps getting promulgated, and you don't know why, but it simply isn't true. And as you noted, the Council of Nicaea wasn't really pertaining to the canon at all. In fact, its primary purpose, as we all know, was to talk about how to articulate the divinity of Jesus. And by the way, it wasn't designed to decide the divinity of Jesus, a la you know, the Da Vinci Code, as if it were up for grabs. It was how to articulate and describe the divinity of Jesus in a most faithful way. So yeah, Nicaea wasn't it. And I would argue that, as you indicated, Athanasius's festal letter wasn't it. He wasn't decided anything for the church. In fact, most of the so-called councils later were, for one, regional and provincial, but also they weren't 
viewing themselves as deciding anything either. They viewed themselves as simply articulating what, in their minds, at least the church had always believed. And so the idea that that's the the starting point of the canon is a total misunderstanding. You could argue rather that's the end of the process, not the beginning of it. Many things have happened of importance long before those things. In keeping with this discussion of the canon, you have formulated what I have found to be a very helpful set of categories to describe the formation of the New Testament canon, where you talk about an ontological canon, then a functional canon, and an exclusive canon. And this idea that we may have variance and fluctuation in a functional canon, but there is an ontological canon and an exclusive canon that agree with one another. We believe that they agree with one another. How would you explain those categories, which I've taught over and over every time I teach apologetics classes on this, I use those categories and teach my students to think in terms of those. But how would you explain those categories to lay people, this idea of ontological, functional, and exclusive canon? Somebody in your church who's trying to put this together, would you unpack those for a person who is trying to understand this, who may be a lay person in your church? Yeah, so one of the things I've noticed over the years writing a lot on canon and talking to people on canon is everybody's got a different definition of canon. When they say the word canon or when they say, here's the time we have a canon, they mean something different than someone else when they use the term. And so unless we're agreed on terminology, we're going to be talking past each other. And the other thing I've noticed over the years, too, is that canon is a multidimensional concept. It's not just sort of this one moment in time kind of idea, but can be looked at from different perspectives. Each of the perspectives have a level of validity to them, but when you absolutize one of the perspectives and make it everything, then I think you distort what the canon is. And so let's start with the thing I just mentioned ago. Let's talk about Athanasius's Festal Letter of 367. This would be what would be called the exclusive view of canon. Someone would say, well, you don't have a canon until you have a fixed final closed list. Okay, if you define canon that way, then I would agree that generally speaking, we don't have a canon until the fourth century. Define that way, meaning all the edges are solidified, all the debates are pretty much over, all the dust is settled. Okay, fair enough. But surely that's not the whole story on the canon, because as I already indicated, the books have been functioning like a canon for generations. So I argue that we need a second definition to capture that other phenomenon. And I call that my functional definition of canon. You could say you have a canon where books are functioning like scripture in the lives of God's people. And we see that extremely early. In fact, second century, for sure, as I've said, you see a core canon functioning as scripture by the mid-second century. Yes, that borders are a little fuzzy. They're not solidified in their totality, but the core is there. Surely that counts as a canon of some sort. And so I argue you've got to count that in the larger discussion. But then there's a third factor here. Isn't it true that if God gave these books, that in fact there was a canon as soon as he gave these books before anyone would have ever recognized them? So for example, when the ink was still dry on John's gospel, isn't it true that it was a canonical book because God inspired it and intended it for his church? So even if no one in the whole planet other than John knew that John had been written, wouldn't it be true that it was still canon? So if you look at canon from a divine perspective, what you realize is that there was a canon in place, all 27 books, when the last of those 27 books was written, even though they hadn't been received or acknowledged. And here's the reason that matters so much, is because I don't want canon to be simply something that's determined by reception. Because as soon as you say that canon only exists when people receive it, then suddenly you put the authority on the people. What I want to acknowledge is that there's something about canon intrinsically, or the word I use, ontologically, true of canon, even if no one had ever noticed it or ever talked about it. It's still truly the books that God gave to his church inspired by him. And so I think you need that definition of canon too. And if you look at that definition of canon, you have a canon in the first century, even though no one had yet fully recognized it. And so I think you need all three stages to fully understand this phenomenon. 
Well, in your book, Christianity at the Crossroads, which is probably my favorite one that I've read several times because it just brings together so many things about the era of the church that I care about the most. But you include in there a really helpful discussion of the textual culture of the early church. I think that's one of the most important parts of that book. And of course, as we both know, this is so very different from what most critics seem to think. This idea that the Gospels were somehow circulating, free-floating, and anonymously, and the stories about Jesus were being fabricated orally and spreading around in response to the church's needs. And so as we think about that, it's really pushing back against what's often called form criticism and a lot of things that come with it about why and how the text even emerges. What you're arguing is that there's a textual culture that is very early in the church's history and very formative in terms of what the church is. So unpack for us what it means that the early church had a textual culture And what are the implications for that textual culture today? Yeah, so what some of your listeners may not know, and you hinted at it, is that there's been a whole stream of scholarship in the last hundred years called form criticism that basically has argued that the earliest traditions of Jesus were all orally transmitted, and they eventually changed and modified over time, and that they had a lot of different fluctuations and eventually got codified in the Bible. But what you get in the Bible is just you know, the result of long periods of time of oral tradition being changed. Form criticism is pretty much on its deathbed now in modern scholarship, and people know that that's been criticized up and down. But one of the ways I've criticized it is this textual culture phenomenon, which is that the earliest Christians, yes, oral tradition was real. Yes, they transmitted their teachings orally. But the idea that, that that's all they did, or that's the only category they had, I think is misunderstanding the way the early Christian movement worked. For one, we know they already had texts, namely the Old Testament. They read it. They understood it. They diagnosed it at a textual level in remarkable detail. The New Testament writers exegete it and talk about it and are inundated with it. So the early Christian movement is already a textual culture before even one Christian word's ever written because they're inherited a textual culture from early Judaism. And then you have evidence that early Christians were writing things down at a very early time. There's speculation they may have written things down in early notebooks, these sorts of early sort of codices that may have recorded some of the words of Jesus. We know that Paul certainly well into his writing phase by the 50s. We have James and other books probably in the 40s. We have proto-gospels, theoretically like Q, whether you think Q is real or not is irrelevant. The point is we have people that have been writing things down for long periods of time. And then even when these books are written, it's clear they are read aloud, they were studied, they were listened to. The fact that most Christians were illiterate isn't a surprise because that's the way the ancient world was, but they were still textual. And this is the thing people miss. You can be illiterate and still textual if you're listening to the text, thinking about the text, being taught the text. So capping all this off, it I argue, is a pretty sophisticated scribal infrastructure where Christians had things like the Nomina Sacra, the Codex. They're a very sophisticated textual culture that suggested they were quite developed in the way they thought about books. And so when the dust settles and all that, all you can say is, wow, yeah, oral tradition played a role. The idea that it played the role, I think, misunderstands the way the early church worked. And this gives us one more reason to think that there was reliable textual transmission in these early stages. Well, let's talk about something you mentioned there, the, the Nomina Sacra. Many of our listeners may not know what that is or understand that, but let's talk about what that is and why that indicates that there was at least some level of convention that they followed as scribes in the early church. Let's talk about that a little bit. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, so the Nomina Sacra is just a Latin phrase. It means sacred names. It's referring to a certain scribal convention of abbreviating certain names. And the, and the four names in English that are abbreviated are God, Jesus, Lord, and Christ, and then other names are eventually added to it. 
So what scribes would do, if the word theos, God, was used, it would simply abbreviate it in a certain way by taking the first and last letter normally and putting a horizontal line over the top as a way to signal out and separate that name as sacred. Now, people think, well, isn't this just to save space? No, it's not. The Nomen Sacra was not a space-saving phenomenon. It was a sign of devotion, okay? And so it was a sign of honor, a little bit like the, the Old Testament way they used to honor the name Yahweh in Old Testament manuscripts, the Tetragrammaton. They're similar to that, the way they honored the divine name here. What's noteworthy for us is, first of all, that Jesus is included in the divine name. That's noteworthy for purposes of Christology. But as far as it pertains to scribal culture, as far back as we can see New Testament manuscripts in the second century, they all include the Nomen of Sacra. In fact, we can hardly find any that don't. It seems like this was a scribal convention that was there from the very start. Hurtado has argued probably by the end of the first century it was there. Now, here's the, the million dollar question. How does that get established so widespread, so uniformly that basically every scribe got the memo that when you copy a Christian book, you use the Nomen of Sacra? That suggests significant amount of cooperation, integration, and communication in a very sort of developed scribal infrastructure. It's not just random Joe Schmo everywhere writing their own copies, but rather they seem to be coordinated and connected. That says a lot about the early Christian scribal structure, which I think bodes well for its reliability. If you think about this, it's, as we both know, it's not just even biblical texts. It's Christians were doing this in a widespread manner in a lot of different texts. I was just a few months ago at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, looking at some of the papyri as well. So I was actually focused on a leather piece there. It was the eighth or ninth century and still, of, of course, has that in it, even as late as that. So this is a very widespread phenomenon. It goes very, very late into history. Yeah, and Christian letters do this a lot, too. It, in Oxyrhynchus, not only do we have a lot of literary papyri, but we got a lot of documentary papyri, which includes letters and wills and you know, receipts and bills of sale. And a lot of these letters, you know they're written by Christians because they actually use the Nomen Sacra in letters, too. It's really a beautiful thing when you look at it. If you're the type of person who sees a manuscript and thinks it's beautiful, it's actually a rather beautiful thing as you see that. Well, you know, Hurtado's argued that it was part of the beginning of a visual material culture for Christians. In other words, even if you couldn't read, you could notice a Nomen Sacra visually. You could see that it was a Christian manuscript just by beholding the abbreviations. And that was the beginning of a visual culture for Christianity, kind of a preliminary sort of artistic side of Christian symbolism. There are many New Testament scholars who question the authorship of certain books in the New Testament. For example, Bart Ehrman in his book Forged, he confidently says, just as if it's settled, that Paul didn't write Ephesians, Colossians, 2 Thessalonians, 1st, 2nd Timothy, or Titus. And he says virtually everyone agrees that Peter could not have written 2 Peter. There are even scholars who refer to themselves as evangelicals who would agree with those assessments. And I think people hear this and they don't realize this. They assume that this has Peter's name on this, therefore Peter must have written it. It has John's name on this, therefore John must have written it. And they hear these things and it really rocks their faith and makes them think, oh my goodness, is the Bible mostly forged? Are the people that I thought wrote these books the ones who actually wrote them or not, especially when you have attacks by Bart Ehrman, particularly on the gospel? declaring that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we don't know who wrote these, but it sure wasn't Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, basically. So as you think about this, thinking of some of these texts, some of you written specifically on Second Peter, how should we engage this scholarship? How should lay people think about this, these ideas, that these claims that the people to whom these texts are ascribed and have been ascribed for centuries were not, in fact, perhaps the people who wrote these texts? 
Yeah, well, this is a common argument. It's been around a while, and I understand why it can you know rattle people. They're thinking, wait a second, if there's forgeries in the New Testament, then surely they're not inspired. And if they're not inspired, then, then maybe the Bible isn't trustworthy. So I get that. There's several things I would say in response to that whole problem. First, this sort of idea that all scholars agree. <laughs> I love it when that gets said. I think we all know enough to know that's not true. You can't get scholars to agree about much of anything. Is it true that most scholars sort of, you might say, in certain academic circles would agree that, say, Second Peter was forged? Yeah, I would say that's probably true. But what's left out of that is what about all the evangelical scholars in the world that say that it's not? And these are no minority group. People forget that the largest seminaries, for example, in the United States, the top 10 largest seminaries are all evangelical with hundreds of faculty. Now, not all of those agree either, but the majority would probably defend the authenticity of the Pauline letters in Second Peter. And so when we say all scholars agree, what that really means is all scholars who already agree with me agree, which isn't really saying much. And so I think you need to understand that there's another side. There's always a, another side of the argument. So that's the first thing to say. Secondly, stylistic arguments are notoriously complicated and in some sense subjective. I mean, that's what these arguments are, saying stylistically, we have one letter from Paul we think is from him, another one's not. And the reason we think so is because they don't sound the same. Well, I think we all know that there's limitations to those size, kinds of arguments. I mean, in the case of Peter, for example, we have such a small sample size of what counts as Peter to know what his range of vocabulary even is. So the idea that because Second Peter doesn't match First Peter, couldn't have written that is just simply, I think, not a good argument. Let me mention a third thing then. If you can't really rely on stylistic things as definitive sources for how you know who wrote a book, what do you rely on? Well, this is a bigger subject than we can get into here, but one of the major ways we know who wrote these books is by early church testimony about who wrote these books. And what I always tell my students is, who's most likely to be right about who wrote a book? Someone who lived in the second century or someone who lived in the 21st century? Okay, that doesn't mean people in the second century are infallible. I'm just saying, who has a better shot of being right? Irenaeus or Bart Ehrman when it comes to something like who wrote John, for example. You can't forget either that Irenaeus was discipled by Polycarp, who was discipled by John himself. And so Irenaeus is only one person removed from John when he says that John wrote John. So it's hard to believe that he would have gotten that wrong. Is it possible he could have gotten that wrong? Sure, lots of things are possible. Is it likely? No, not historically. And so I'm going to argue that the patristic sources closer to the mark have a better shot of knowing who wrote these particular books. So all those are reasons to doubt this so-called scholarly consensus. I'll mention one final thing, which is that if, in fact, a book was a forgery, I think that does raise questions about its inspiration. This is why I think the hybrid view, which I can be an evangelical and believe Second Peter was forged, I think just at the end doesn't work, because I think ultimately you end up with a book that's fraudulent. I think that's hard to square with the belief that God inspired it. So that's one final thought on that. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on this podcast. I'm super thankful for you, for your work, for what you're doing at RTS, and for your stand as an evangelical scholar, trusting in the authority of God's word and defending it. Thank you so much for having joined us today. Thanks, my friend. Enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you're interested in supporting the Apologetics Podcast, go to patreon.com slash three chords and the truth. As always, that's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. To listen to more episodes or to learn more about the two of us, take a look at our website at theapologeticspodcast.com. 
Also, if you're interested in learning more about apologetics, ministry, and leadership in urban contexts, you might enjoy the Urban Ministry Podcast. Go to urban.sbts.edu to learn more about this podcast. My name is Timothy Paul Jones. My co-host is Garrick Bailey, and we are already looking forward to joining you next time on the next exciting episode of The Apologetics Podcast. Also, supposedly in Morton Grove, Illinois, is a bone from Aristides of Athens, which is pretty amazing. And I will simply read what the caretaker sent to me about one other portion of this. He said, the only finger bone we have is from Ignatius of Antioch, his right finger. The Latin patriarch of Antioch gave us the finger. (laughs) (laughs) That's just what they said, folks. Write themselves, (laughs) folks. We don't even... (laughs) We don't even have to take it to a a certain place. Some jokes just write themselves.